0: My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, the question after you watch that video from Talladega Nights is, how do you like your Jesus? Right, that's what they're discussing, right? Which Jesus do you like? Well, I like Jesus like this. I like Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it's, it's formal, but he still likes to party because I like to party. I want my Jesus to party. That's kind of the question. And it's humorous and it's Interesting to kind of make light of that, but, but it really taps into something that's true about our experience, is we kind of want to make God the way we want to make God. We want a God that's kind of like us. We, we have a difficult time, a hard time thinking that God could contradict us, or tell us we're wrong or even I mean, we, we really don't like it if God were to tell us that we're sinners that we're morally objectionable, that we do things wrong. And this is evidenced by something that you hear pretty common. Maybe you've even said this, and so if you've said this, I'm going to pick on you a little bit here. Um, But sometimes people will say something like, my God would never blank. Which oftentimes when people say that, my God would never, usually what they're saying is, the God of my imagination would never blank. Rarely are they actually referring to the God of the Bible, the God who has the right and the authority to say what he wants. So we believe that, that, that God has the right to contradict us. God has the right even to offend us. Do you have a belief system that allows God to contradict you? If you don't, If your God just always does whatever you want, it could be that you aren't worshiping the real God. We believe that God can and does offend us. And he does it through his word. There was an article I was reading where a guy was talking about what if I was ever on Piers Morgan or one of these other talk shows. And they would ask me about all these offensive verses in the Bible. And he wrote this. He said, the most offensive thing I believe is Genesis 1-1. And everything it implies. Genesis 1-1 says this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he says that's the most offensive verse in the Bible if you realize what it implies. What it implies is that God created it. Therefore God gets to define it. Therefore God gets to tell us how it works. And we have a choice. We can either discover the true value and meaning of things as given by God. Or we can rebel against it. But God's word is full of things that aren't there just to contradict us or just to offend us or simply to make us feel bad, but because God loves us. One person has said this, when God says don't, what he means is don't hurt yourself. When God says do this, what he's saying is here is a path to sure joy and blessing. And so we believe that God is authoritative that he has the right to speak, that he has the right to define things the way they should be, and that we come under the authority of that word. Now, some of you are here, and you would not consider yourself to be a Christian. And uh, maybe you're exploring it. Maybe you're kind of wondering what it might be like to be a follower of Christ. Maybe you're even a little more antagonistic, and we're glad that you're here. I think this is a great environment for us to discuss some important things, and we're glad you're part of it. But one objection you might have at this point would be to go, I get the idea that God can contradict, but the Bible? I mean, really? Isn't the Bible just like one massive game of telephone? Sort of started with this some good stuff, but over the years it's just been changed and it's been distorted and it's been retranslated and, you know, isn't that kind of what the Bible's about? I mean, how can we really trust that this ancient document has anything really to say to us today? I mean, it's it's 2013. Well, I hope you know that at some point, someone was like, can you believe it? It's, it's the year 112, and they still believe the Bible, right? I mean, that's, that's not a new objection, right? Everyone in every culture has thought, uh, you know, their culture was superior. So there's a little bit of some pride and arrogance there when we have that kind of a thinking. But, but I want to give you just at least one answer why I think the scriptures. Uh, trustworthy. And, and you could, there are lots more. I, there's, a, there's a blog post that I posted today with a bunch of resources related to that and related to this issue that we're talking about today. Um, lots of things in there. One of them is a sermon by John Benzinger, who's a pastoral resident here, on why you should trust the Bible. I encourage you to listen to it. But one reason, at least, why I think you can uh, trust the scripture is that many biblical authors, including the Apostle Paul, whose letter we're writing today, or we're reading today, The Apostle Paul died for his message. Now, that's not unique. There's lots of religious teachers that have died for things they said. But listen to this. These biblical authors died for their faith. And no one would die knowingly for a lie they created. There are a lot of people that, that, are, that die for all kinds of things where they're misguided or they're ill-informed. But if you were the, like behind the conspiracy of creating a lie, and then you were going to be killed for it, that would be the point at which you'd go, okay, never mind. This was all made up. And none of them do that. They are willing to die for what that message was because they were eyewitnesses to a risen Christ. That's why we believe the Bible. There's more that you could say about that. But why go into all this? Why this whole discussion of that God can contradict us and that God can offend us? Why that? Well, the reason is because for the next few months, as we study Romans chapter 1 through 3, God is going to be continually offending us. It's going to be very offensive for the next few months. Not just today, not just next week, but I mean, you're just week after week. It's going to be like, hit me again, hit me again. I mean, that's just how it's going to be. There's going to be lots in Romans 1 through 3 that's just offensive that offends our modern sensibilities, that tells us we do some things wrong, that points out some error and challenges us with new ways of thinking. And so it has the potential to be offensive. But we're going to dive into it anyway. We, we believe here that we, uh, and a lot of the time we do this, not, not all the time, but most of the time we pick a book of the Bible and we teach through it. And the benefit of that is that it forces you to talk about stuff that you would probably not pick to talk about because it's kind of unpopular. But you end up talking about things that are both popular and, and in season and unpopular and out of season. And you just keep working your way through that. And I think that's valuable. But, but you might ask, well, why two weeks on just these two verses? Because that's what we're going to do. Uh, chapter 1, 26 and 27. We're going to spend two weeks there. Why that? That feels like a little much. Well, um, these verses talk about the issue of homosexuality, and there's two reasons why we're going to spend this much time on it. The first one, and this is not new information to anybody, this is a huge cultural issue right now. I mean, you can't turn on the TV or listen to the radio or get a news feed or read the paper or anything and not have to think through or go to work and talk to somebody. I mean, you just, you're inundated with this topic of homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all the cultural implications, and, and it's just becoming more because the Supreme Court is deciding some of these cases this summer, and, and it's, it's right there in the forefront of our cultural attention, and so it's worth pausing and, and really examining it. But, but more than that, there's a second reason. See, this is not just a cultural abstraction. It's a personal issue. It's really meaningfully personal to most of us. Most of us have a relationship with someone, a friend, or a family member, a child, an uncle, coworkers, People that we really, really like. People that we care about. People that we admire. People that in many ways we would say, I think they might be a better person than me. Who would identify themselves as gay or lesbian. And we wrestle with, what do we do with that? And how are we to approach that? And is, is it okay after all? And, and, and we, we think through those things. And there's real relationships that we have. And this needs to speak into that. But, but even that, more, that, that's for sure true. But, but I also believe there are many in this room who at some point have experienced some kind of same-sex attraction. Maybe even they're experiencing some level of that now. Maybe you're feeling a level of confusion about how do I make sense of what I'm feeling on the inside? What do I do with this? And for you, it's not an abstraction. It's personal. It's real. It's important. So we're going to spend two weeks looking at it. This week, we're going to focus really on the theology of homosexuality. What does the Scripture say about this this issue? Next week, we're going to really look at Um, a Christian attitude toward homosexuality. So this is important. You made a commitment when you came today that you didn't even know you made. You made a commitment to come next week by coming today. By virtue of your presence here today, we expect you to come back next week. Some of you are going to need to change your flight plans if you're from out of town. (laughs) I met a guy after the first service from India. I was like, sorry, dude. You got to stick around. Um, But I really, you know, I'm all kidding aside this is a this is a two part sermon these, Today and next week they go together so don 't draw conclusions about what i 've said or what i haven 't said at the end of today. Come back next week and we need to see these as sort of one message that 's long but extended and that 's really important so today we 're going to focus on the the theology side next week will be more of an application of how do we engage culturally and personally and And all that sort of stuff. Uh, But I do, I I think it'd be inappropriate to just dive in and not mention a little bit about what our attitude should be towards this issue. And not just towards the issue, but towards those who identify themselves as gay or lesbian. And so I've written um, six things, six just kind of ideas about our attitude. You don't need to write these down or anything, but I wrote them down just to make sure I say them really specifically. And intentionally, so here's the first thing about our attitude towards this issue and those who identify as gay. The first thing the scripture says that all people are made in God's image, all people, and therefore deserve love, respect, and honor. Everybody, it's not an us and them, it's not here's these privileged group of people made in God's image, and everyone else, it's, it's everyone is made in God's image and deserves love, respect, and honor. Secondly, we become Christians by admitting that we are total failures. That's how you become a Christian. That's the only real prerequisite to becoming a Christian, is to say, my deal's not working. I'm a mess. I can't do anything good before a holy and perfect and righteous God. That's the only way you become a Christian, Right, the song goes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It doesn't say that saved a pretty good guy like me. Right, that would be a lame song. That would not be amazing grace. But you become a Christian by admitting your failure. So Christians, better than anybody, should know that we're not better than anybody. Do you get that? It makes no sense when Christians look down their nose at people as if we're morally superior when we know we're not. At least we should know. That's important. Number three, well, not everyone who disagrees with homosexuality is hateful. Right? That's the charge. If you, if you say homosexuality's wrong or it's a sin, you're labeled as hateful or bigoted. And I don't think that's right. Not everyone who disagrees with it is, is hateful. But many Christians have, including myself, probably including you, many Christians have been guilty of unloving words, jokes, and attitudes toward people who identify as gay. This kind of attitude is rude, unkind, hateful, and unacceptable. It's not okay. Because we know that we're wretches saved by sheer grace. It's not okay. And so, for our redemption communities, you know, what they do is we gather during the week, as we often use the text of the sermon as kind of the launching point for our discussion. And I've told our leaders that, that there is to be no tolerance for this kind of hateful, bigoted, arrogant. It doesn't mean you, you have to think that homosexuality is right, but if the spirit of your heart is. is Joking, condemning, eh, not going to allow that. Number four, to be truly loving means caring, asking questions, listening, learning, sacrificing time, and showing people that you love them even if they never change. Too often we'll say, change. And you can join us. Jesus' message was join us, and you can change. And you will change. Right? But but we are so often guilty of, of not really wanting to be loving. We just want to appear loving. And real love means sacrificing time and listening and asking questions and caring about a person, not as a notch on your belt, not just trying to win an argument but caring about people as image bearers of God. There's a fifth thing. Christians need to ask themselves, do I want to make a difference or do I just want to make a point? We'll talk about this more next week, but but you can make a point and not make a difference. And it's very easy to make a point. You can do it with a sign in your yard. You can do it on Facebook. Boy, what a great place to make points. You know, and man, you stir up controversy and discussion and you think, oh, wow, now this is real dialogue. No, it's not. You're making a point, right? No, no one's mind is changed. No one's perspective is sharpened. You make a point. You're not making a difference. And, and we want to be people that are salt and light in the earth that make over the long haul as we love people and care about people and speak the truth in love that make not just a point but a difference. And here's the last thing, is that God's approval ultimately trumps man's approval. So we will follow the scriptures, even if in doing so we are falsely accused of being intolerant and unloving. I am ready to be accused of those things. I don't want to be, but I can stand before the Lord and say, God, ultimately, you're the king. You created all things. You get the final word. So that's just some words about our attitude. We'll talk more about that quite a bit next week. But but today, we're going to really try to answer this question. What does the Apostle Paul say about God's view of homosexuality? What does the Apostle Paul say about God's view of homosexuality? And we're going to find that in verses 26 and 27. But before we get to it, we got to do some other work. So I know you're like, didn't we read that verse like 20 minutes ago? Like. Are we going to get there? Yeah, we'll get there, but we've got to do some work first, because if you just pull these verses up without an understanding of the overall context, you lose the full meaning of those verses, and you do the very thing that critics of the Scripture say people do, and so we're not going to do that. We're going to look at the context. We're going to look at kind of the big picture of what's happening in these verses, and so I view it as kind of three concentric circles. Uh, on kind of the, the, the big picture, the 30,000 feet where we'll start is looking at Romans chapter 1 through 3. And so we'll look at that and then we'll zoom in on Romans one eighteen through 32. And then we'll finally zoom in on kind of this bullseye of these particular verses. Okay, So, so that's kind of how we're going to track. You need a Bible in your lap or on your phone or on some sort of device. If you don't have one this week, if you don't have a Bible at all, make sure you stop at the info desk and they'll give you one. Uh, but, but bring your Bibles and, and be able to track along with us as we go if you can, okay? So first, the big picture of Romans 1 through 3. The big picture of Romans, we saw the very first week in chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul, a servant... Of Christ Jesus. Now that could be translated a slave of Christ Jesus. This was Paul's label. We talked about how do you label yourself, right? People give you labels. You take on labels, identities. Here's who I am. Paul's saying, "You wonder who I am? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't get to define how I like my Jesus. I'm a slave to who He is, and I'm called and set apart specifically. It says at the end of verse one for the gospel." Of God. The good news of God's saving plan that's God's. It's God's gospel. It's the gospel of God. So Paul is saying, I am under authority, even as an apostle, even as a leader, I'm under the authority of Christ. I'm his slave, and I have a message that belongs to him. And so I'm just a messenger here. The point of this message, it says in chapter 1, verse 5, is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Paul wants people everywhere among the nations among all peoples to trust God and to then live in obedience to him. So the theme verse really of Romans 1 or of Romans as a whole is Romans 1:16 where he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first those are the religious and also to the Greek. So Paul begins and says listen there is a message called the gospel it's good news of how god rescues and saves people and he saves religious people and he saves irreligious people and that's what we're going to talk about in this book that's really what he's saying now i got a question for you when someone comes to you and says what do you uh, they, they say i got good news and i got bad news which do you want first what do you always say here, some bad. Who, say, who says bad news? Like bad news? Who says I like good news? Who will never raise their hand no matter what? <laughs> okay, yeah, good. Um, all right, so, so most people said bad news. I, th- I think the more optimistic you are, the more you want the good news. I'm not particularly optimistic, so um, I, I like the bad news first. I feel like, you know, it'll at least end well, hopefully. Um <laughs> That's at least my, my desire. Well, that's, that's kind of Paul's approach in this book. He says there's good news coming, right? And people love the book of Romans because it is so filled with good news. But, but only after lots of bad news. And that's what we're going to be looking at over these next few months. Chapter 1, the, we'll, we'll zoom in on in just a minute. But really the idea of chapter 1 is Paul is saying irreligious people are guilty, What can be known about God from creation, they see it, and they reject it, and they're guilty. And then he turns the tables in chapter 2 and he says, but wait a second, religious people are guilty too. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He's just talked about a bunch of different sins. We'll look at those in a moment. But in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says the standard is really going to be higher for religious people because they know more. They have more information that they're rejecting. Right? The, the, the irreligious, the, the, the garden variety pagans in Romans 1, they, they have some light that they're rejecting, but, but the religious people, the Jews, they've got a lot and they're still rejecting it with their actions and their heart. Look at Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You get it? <laughs> Irreligious people are guilty? Religious people are guilty. And in case you're still confused, Romans two, seventeen. The sarcasm is unbelievably thick here in this section. I really like it. Chapter two, seventeen. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You get his point? Religious people are guilty too. They're the hypocrites. They're maybe in some ways even more guilty. And in case we still just aren't sure, we get to Romans 3. And the point of Romans 3 is every single person is guilty. Right? So you had irreligious people as a group, guilty. Religious people as a group, guilty. You go, well, I'm not really, I don't know which group. Okay. Okay. Every single person gets hit in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one, one commentator writing about chapter 1, 26, and 27 and homosexuality helps us remember this overall context when he says this. It is not Paul's goal to make homosexuals feel guilty. It is his goal to make everyone feel guilty. Right? Boy, isn't this fun? <laughs> I mean, but this is his point. He's saying, listen, everyone is part of this mess. Well, let's zoom in then, that middle circle, on Romans 1, 18 through 32, because that's kind of this section that, that we're in. Uh, we looked, began it last week. We'll continue it in these next few weeks. And what it tells us in verse 18 is that the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because we suppress the truth, we are thankless, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. We, we love the created thing rather than the creator. There's that evil exchange we talked about last week. And therefore, the wrath of God is being revealed. Like, we experience daily the wrath of God. You go, uh, really? What is that like? Well, what it's like, as it's explained in this passage, is God giving us up to what we want. God giving rebels what they ask for. That's what God does. It says in verse 24... Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, in the middle. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's what it is. It's God saying, I'll give you what you want. That is a form of God's wrath. Saying, you're going to ruin your life. But if you insist on this, go ahead. Tyler told that just wonderful story last week about being a little kid at a restaurant and seeing the red liquid in the bottle and going, Dad, I want to drink that. Dad, I want to drink that. No, it's Tabasco sauce. You're not drinking it. No, it'll be great. I want to wa- no, drink it. No, I want to drink it. No, I want to drink it. Fine, moron. Drink it. And he drank it. Oops, Right? But, but eventually, God gives us what we want. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, where you have a, a younger brother. There's a man with two sons, and the younger son goes to his dad and basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my share of the inheritance now. The inheritance I'll get when you die, I don't, I'm not waiting for that. I want, I want it now. And the father, shockingly, The father is kind of the God figure in that parable. The father, shockingly, gives him what he asks for. Liquidates a bunch of his stuff, sells off a bunch of his things, and gives him money, knowing that he's going to do what he, in fact, did, which was go to Vegas and blow the whole thing. But God gives us what we want. And that leads to all kinds of sin because we want all kinds of sin. Verse 24 talks about impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26 and 27 talks about exchanging um, natural relations for unnatural, <clears throat> for unnatural and homosexuality. But then, if that's not enough, verse, verses 29 through 32 just is like, he's making the point. Verse 29 They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Filled, right? Not a little bit, not just select things, but filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, right? Jealousy, wanting what someone else has, murder. Strife, deceit, right? twisting the truth, telling a story just a little bit better to make yourself look better. Telling a lie. You ever told a lie? You're here. Maliciousness. You go, man, that's bad stuff. I'm glad I don't do that. All right, here we go. They are gossips. Spreading rumors about people. Slanderers. Trying to ruin people's reputation. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. You ever boastful? Why aren't people more like me? Can you believe how these idiots drive? They drove like me. Man, this would be great. Boastful. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Gosh, Paul, you're digging deep here. (laughs) Foolish, faithless, heartless ruthless, right? I mean, that kind of just covers it all, pretty much. And just in case, like, it didn't, he said, inventors of evil. It's like, you might come up with a new category, That's what he's saying. (laughs) And then it says in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You go, wait, 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 and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but deserve to die? I mean, I get murder, and but like disobedience to parents, death penalty, what? Well, listen, I've told you this illustration before. If I were to, you know, punch Dave Bublitz, you know, he's got a strong right hook. He might get me back, but for the most part, nothing's going to happen. If I go and I punch a police officer, I'm at least going to get hauled off somewhere. And if somehow I sneak through secret service and punch the president, jail time. Same offense, but the penalty gets stiffer depending on the person you offend. So even a small little offense like disobedience to parents, when that's done against God, deserves death. So so Paul here, again, not trying to single anyone out. He's trying to make everybody feel guilty. But one of these areas of sin that he does explore is homosexuality. So let's look at that. Finally, the inner circle here in Romans 1, 26 and 27. He says, for this reason, for what reason? Well, the reason he gave in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, it's important to say here that Paul's not describing an individual's particular situation. He's describing the reality of humanity. Here's how this works, is, is people... Make this exchange, and one of the results is verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged, there is, again, that word exchange, right? There's this exchange going on. An exchange for what is part of God's created order for something that isn't. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to to nature. Now that's interesting because uh, there are only six places in the scripture where it talks about homosexuality. And this is the only one that talks about women. All the other ones deal exclusively with men. When you read the documents of different law codes and different philosophers and different historians from around that were written around this same period of time, they all have to do only with male homosexuality. Paul here is introducing... Uh, Saying, listen, this is how pervasive this is. Because we could all understand that guys are just a little overzealous sexually. You know, they might, you know, be willing to try all kinds of things. He's saying, even, right? Some of your translations in verse 26 say, for even their women do this. It's not just a male thing. And it's not just a, an overpassionate and overlustful thing, it's a, it's a fundamental exchange of what God created for something he didn't. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We'll talk more about that idea of receiving in themselves in just a moment. But you Hopefully you see Paul's point. His illustrate, this is really an illustration. His point has been, there are certain things about how God's created the world that should be plain, that should be clearly perceived, is how he says it in verse 20, and they're not. And so we make these exchanges. And one exchange has to do with our sexuality, where we exchange the created way that God made things for something else. So, I want to dig into some of the implications of this, but I want to do it kind of by asking some questions, some objections that, that people have. And these are real objections. Perhaps you've heard these, uh, perhaps you've read these, as I've read a bunch of different stuff and been, I've listened to a number of people teach uh, that have a different perspective and, a, and an opposite perspective than the one that I'm presenting today. And I've heard their argumentation and their reasoning, and I want to kind of try to represent what they're saying and and give what I think would be Paul's answer to, to those questions. So here's the first question. I got five of them. Here's the first one. Homosexuality is not a major biblical theme. So why does Paul emphasize it here? And that's true. It's not a major biblical theme. It's mentioned six times. This is the longest section. This is the longest passage that talks about it. Right? It's a consistent theme. Each passage says the same thing, but it's not a major theme. I mean, this isn't, this isn't as big of a deal as, say, the Exodus, or that Christ is the you know, atoning Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or that Scripture is breathed out by God and can be trusted. I mean, those are major themes. The character of God's trust, major themes. Homosexually, not a major theme. Consistent, but not major. So why does Paul bring it up here? Well, he brings it up because it's such a good illustration of the clear break from what is plain to see through creation. Right? This, I think Paul is saying, is a matter of you can tell through the way God has made our bodies how we're to work together. One seminary professor has said if an alien came and you know, saw everyone naked, he should be able to figure out who goes with who because that's how God created it. So that's why he's talking about it, is it really makes the point. It's a very obvious illustration of the point that he is making. Second objection. But what's the big deal? It doesn't hurt anybody? consenting adults, doing what they want to do, Who cares? Well, here's why it matters. Here's it matters to Paul, is Paul knows that the, create, the creation, right? And this is, this is what he's been talking about, right? Um, all through this section is, is how God's created things. God is, or he, Paul's referring back to creation, and the creation account tells us that God made us in his image with a complementary other. God saw Adam, and it was not good that he was alone, so God made a helper suitable, compatible for him. Wasn't one of the animals, right? That was even, you know, he went through and named them. Couldn't find a helper suitable for him. So God made a woman, a complementary other. And this is, this is so, um, th- this is why God says, um, he, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Because in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have complementary other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But they complement one another and are one. And so God created man in his image with a complementary other. And when we look for a complementary same, we're distorting the image of God created in us. That's why it's a big deal. What Paul is saying, really, is saying the further you walk away from God's image in you, the more dehumanizing you're making yourself. You're walking away from how God created you. That is, in a sense, the punishment of sin. Right? The, 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 the punishment is built into the sin. That's what he's saying in verse 27 where he says, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When God says don't, he means don't. Hurt yourself. Now listen, this is true not just of homosexuality. This is true of all kinds of things, and especially all kinds of other sexual sin. Think about an issue that that probably way more people in this church deal with than homosexuality, which is pornography. What is pornography? Pornography is also in exchanging the truth about God for a lie. It's not looking for your complimentary other. It's looking to satisfy your own desires by yourself. It's looking to turn women created in the image of God or men created in the image of God into objects, objectifying them, turning them into meat, turning them into just things for your pleasure. And what happens is the more you commit that sin, the more it warps your humanity. You you have a hard time connecting intimately with other people, especially a spouse. Not just sexual intimacy, but relational intimacy. You begin to see people as objects to just meet your needs. The punishment of pornography is built into the sin. Some will say, Well, I've never had God punish me for this. Yes, you have. Your, Your view of the image of God is more warped because of it. That's the same, it's a very same kind of question. Who cares about pornography? It doesn't hurt anybody. Except for those who do it, It hurts them deeply. Here's a third objection. Wasn't Paul really just critiquing temple prostitution, you know, homosexual temple prostitution, and pederasty? This is a little bit more of an academic argument. Pederasty is the practice of an adult male with a with a youth male, which was both of those were common things in the first century, especially in Greek and Roman culture. And so this objection says, isn't that really what Paul's after? I mean, that's, that's a very different thing than an adult, consensual, loving, monogamous, homosexual relationship. So how can you say that Paul's attacking all kinds of homosexuality? Isn't he just attacking these abusive kinds? And the answer to that is, there are many examples in the first century of that kind of abuse of homosexuality. There are also other examples, if you look at the history, of loving, monogamous, adult, homosexual relationships. There's even discussion about gay marriage. Should that be allowed? This is not a brand new thing. Paul experienced in his day plenty of people who were in committed homosexual relationships. The issue is not that. The issue is the break with God's created order. That's why it matters to Paul. Here's the fourth objection. Wasn't Paul really critiquing... Oh, I already talked about that. I read it really well, though. Number four. What if a person is born with same-sex attraction? What if that's what comes naturally? Isn't... Right, one, one guy that I listened to made the argument... That Paul's point in verse 26 about women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature was really what it was about was whatever feelings, sexual feelings you're born with, just don't change them. Right? So he was saying that the critique here was that people were born with heterosexual desire and traded in for homosexual desire. That was the problem. It wasn't homosexual desire. It was the trade. And therefore, for someone who has, is born with feelings of homosexual desire, to trade that for something else would be sin, that, that Paul would critique that. Now, I don't think that that is a, a right interpretation of this First, because when he's talking about nature, in the, again, in the context, he's clearly talking about the way God created the world. The words here, even for, for men and women, are really male and female. It's hearkening right back to Genesis 1 through 3, and that created order. But there is an important question here. What if a person is born with same-sex attraction? Or maybe not even born, but it just comes naturally. It's all they've ever known. What then? I think this is something that we need to think about. There's a difference between same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and gay or lesbian identity. But but it, but it's helpful to think through. I, I'm leaning here on Sam Williams as a professor, uh, who, you know, compiled some research and some really helpful things here. I'll post all the information on that on the website. Um, but but he talks about that. There's there's sort of different ways to think about this. One is same-sex attraction. You see, about six percent of men, four percent of women. These are 2011 numbers. Uh, about you know that percentage it report having at some point an experience of same-sex attraction. Now, same-sex attraction is kind of a scale. It, it varies in duration, and in intensity, um, in longevity, that sort of a thing. So, so for someone, it might be as as slight as saying, you know, there's this one person of the same sex that I was attracted to, but I've never experienced that with anyone else or any other thing. It may be kind of a thing, you know, this was a a part of my life where I was having these feelings and it just went away. could be that. that, But on the strong end of that scale uh, would be people who would identify as same-sex oriented. These would be people who would report the the only desires I have sexually are for people of the same sex. And, And here's what you need to know. In both of those cases same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, and you know this from the friends and people you've talked to, that is an agonizing place for many of them to be. They begin to think through those feelings and go, what do I do with this? There's lots of confusion. There's lots of turmoil. There's lots of, I feel different. I don't like this. Which, Which is why a lot of them will say, I don't know if I was born this way, but I know I didn't choose this. I wouldn't choose this. If I could unchoose this, I would. I would be crazy. My life has been a living hell since I've been feeling this way. Why would I choose this? And I think we need to take those people at their word and say, I, I believe you that this is all you've ever known. But the question then becomes how do you interpret those feelings? What story? Do you use to inform how to then respond? You say, this is how I feel. This is all I've ever felt, right? And so, so some people there, same-sex orientation, this is, this is, they are only d- attracted to people of the same sex, about 2% of men, just under uh, 1% of women. How, how, do, how do they interpret that? What do you do with that? Perhaps you're here today, and, and you're thinking these things. You're feeling these things. I, I've got these attractions. I don't know what to do. How will you interpret them? Well, sadly, the culture has, and even the church really, hasn't spoken into this. We've only offered one available interpretation. So people wrestle with this, and they feel it, and they go, I don't know what to do, and I don't know what this means. And, and then eventually, because the only story that's out there is this one, they will come and they'll say, I must be gay. And then that idea of being gay or being lesbian usually has an experience of coming out and usually then has all these other things where where people begin to attach this as a key feature of their identity, right? So get this, same-sex attraction and same-sex orientation often, in most cases, are not chosen. But to then take on gay identity or lesbian identity is always chosen. Right so so Paul I can just imagine him saying listen maybe you were born this way but you weren't created this way this desire and behavior is out of line with how god created the world therefore don't live out your sinful nature live out a new nature in christ Submit all of your natural inclinations and tendencies and sins to the cross of Jesus Christ and follow him. Let him become your new identity. That's the alternative interpretation. So for Paul, I don't think he, it doesn't throw him off to go, yeah, maybe people are born this way. Because everything is broken by sin. And in reality, as people study this in the social sciences, no one knows for sure why some people experience this. It's a host of all kinds of things. Here's the last question, the last objection. Then what hope is there for people who are experiencing same-sex attraction or orientation or gay identity? Is there any hope here? There is tons of hope. Right? It's the same question of, is there any hope for these people who are gossips and slanderers and jealous and sexually immoral in all kinds of other ways and inventors of evil and disobedience for parents? Is there any hope for any of us if all of us are deserving of death? Is there hope? Yes. The hope is found in Jesus Christ. Right, The, the, the father in the story of the prodigal son Gave his son up to do what he wanted to do. But that was not the end of the story. The son came to his senses. And when I have a father who loves me, what am I doing? And he went home. And when he started to get there, his his father was not indifferent. His father was not cold. His father saw him while he was a long way off and came running. Something a land-owning patriarch would never do. Shameful. Women ran. Children ran. This father ran. Bearing the shame that the son deserved. Throws a robe on him. Throws a ring on his finger. Slaughters a fatted calf. Throws a party to bring him home. Because giving him up to his sin was not the last word. And it's not the last word for us. God gives us up. He lets us do what we want. But if we will turn to Christ... There is hope. This Greek word of of God giving giving us up, it's also used a couple of other places here in this book of Romans. We'll get to this uh, someday. But in Romans chapter 4, listen, this this is such an interesting use of this word. Romans chapter 4. He says, righteousness will be counted to us. Wait, 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 wait we're sinners. We're guilty. All of us. Irreligious. Religious. Every single person. Paul says, you can have righteousness counted to you, credited to you, through faith to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up. That's that same word. Given up. God gave him up. But God didn't give him up to sin. God gave him up to be killed. Jesus was the truly righteous one, not born with sin, not acting out of sin. If anyone deserved praise and honor and perfection, it was him. And God gave him up, delivered him up for us, for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. He'll say in Romans 8.32 That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is hope. Yes, God gave us up to our sin but even more he gave up Jesus for our righteousness. So the question is going back to our very first week looking at this book, what label will you carry? How will you construct your identity? This is who I am. This is what I stand for. Will you be labeled and defined by your sin or by your Savior? Will you be a slave to your natural desires or will you be a slave to Jesus as Paul was? Some will say, but gosh, that sounds so hard. It sounds so difficult. It is. It's very difficult. It's difficult to give up everything that you naturally want and subject it to Christ. It's incredibly difficult. And yet, that's what it is to become a Christian. Right? A lot of us want this sort of Christianity where I can just sort of sprinkle in some Jesus. He'll bless my thing, right? I just just want a little. I don't want too much. And some of you, you're in a place, hey, take a step. Take a step. But eventually, listen, this is what he calls us to, is a complete reorientation of our lives around him. It's incredibly devastating. There's a really helpful book that I read in preparation for these messages called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, she was an English professor at Syracuse, uh, boldly lesbian, uh, was the kind of head of, a kind of academic sponsor of a lot of the different gay and lesbian student groups. And uh, I'll tell you more next week about her story and about how the things God used and the Christians God used to get a hold of her life. But she eventually... Uh, became a a follower of Jesus, and it ruined her life. Because think about it, if you're you're known for your ultra-liberal gay agenda, and that's how you're known as a professor, and that all changes, she lost everything. And she writes about this devastating nature of conversion. Here's just a bunch of different quotes. I've put them all together to kind of give you the feel for it. Here's what she says. Christ claimed me for himself, and the life that I had known and loved came to a humiliating end. This word, conversion, is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face-to-face with the living God. I know of only one word to describe this time-released encounter, impact. Impact is, I believe, the space between the multiple car crash and the body count. Although grateful, I did not perceive conversion to be a blessing. It was a train wreck. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. When Christ gave me the strength to follow him, I didn't stop feeling like a lesbian. I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. At this time, though, obeying in faith to me felt like throwing myself off a cliff. Faith that endures is heroic not sentimental. Let's just pause there for a second. you hear what she's saying? Like we have this, oh, just believe, just have a little more faith, like put that on a coffee cup. Here's what she's saying. Real trust in God when it goes against everything that you naturally feel like is right, that's heroic. That's tough. That is difficult. That's real faith. She says, I couldn't believe how exhausting it was to daily put Christ before me. The old patterns were there waiting for me, and they knew my name. And I'm grateful that when I heard the Lord's call on my life, and I wanted to hedge my bets, keep my girlfriend, and add a little God to my life, I had a pastor and friends in the Lord who asked nothing less of me than that I die to myself. That's what it is. To become a Christian is to die to yourself. That's what it is to experience the devastating reality of true conversion. Dying to your old ways of thinking, dying to your old desires, dying to the, all the things that come naturally, focused on sin and self, and to be remade in the image of Christ daily in a grind, walking by faith, trying to trust that He's better. Have you experienced true conversion? Have you experienced the devastating nature of reorienting your whole life around Christ? You go, wait, 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 wait. I thought you were going at the homosexuals today. No. Because Paul's talking about everybody. Are you reoriented around Christ? Are you born again? Are you converted? See, it's only there where even in the midst of that devastation, there's hope. There's hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is one of the other places where Paul mentions homosexuality, and I love how he finishes this. It starts with a, another sin list. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. You notice that he doesn't just pick one thing out. It's always this big list. None of this will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You weren't defined by that sin. That label didn't own you. You were defined by Christ and now you've been washed and now you've been cleansed and now you're trying day by day to walk by faith. There's hope for any of us battling what God calls sin. Now listen. This sermon's not over, okay? It's over for now, but we'll be back next week. And I want you to be here. And, and it's really important that we don't finish just saying about here's what's true, but, but how do we now engage with friends and family and culture? How do we think these things through? Come back next week. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your um, constant grace. Thank you for giving up your son, Jesus, for wretched sinners like us. We pray that the power of real conversion would change us day by day from the inside out. We trust you to do it. We thank you that you're good. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.